0: Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. I don't know if this is your experience. Uh, It is mine somewhat often. Some days it feels like there's not enough time in the day for everything. You go to bed, and you have a hard time falling asleep because of all the things you're thinking about that you didn't do, or that you should do, or that you'll have to get done tomorrow. Maybe you buy an older house and your list of projects of things that have to get fixed just keeps getting longer and longer. Maybe you're running out the door and one kid needs to find shoes and another is hungry and maybe a third is crying. In these sorts of situations, we have to prioritize. What's most important? What has to get fixed first? How can I minister to all my kids consistently? This is similar to the situation that we read about in Acts chapter 6 in the early church. The church had grown significantly, but was starting to show some growing pains. People weren't getting along, the list of needs wasn't getting any smaller, and the work needed to keep moving forward. So as we look at verses 1 through 7 this morning, I think that we can learn from this passage some principles for how we can Minister to physical needs without neglecting spiritual needs of those in the church family. I think the first point we see from these verses is that you should minister to the needs of fellow church members, to their physical needs. Specifically, the question in this passage is ministry to widows. We won't go uh, into detail in it for sake of time, but First Timothy chapter 5 gives a great deal more instruction about specifically what this was supposed to look like. Who was considered a widow... Their responsibilities of their family and the church and how those things related and just why this sort of ministry was important. But right here the practice of the early church clearly was to minister to those who are in need in their uh, society that would have been much more dependent on the husband to provide for them. Think back to the example of Ruth in the Old Testament when her husband died and her sister's her uh, sister-in-law's husband died, when um, uh, Naomi was without a husband as well, what was it that provided for their daily needs? It was going out to the fields and picking up leftover grain and, and taking care of themselves that way. And God had set up things in Israel so that the needs of widows would be met. The Old Testament consistently emphasized the importance of ministry both to widows and to orphans. And God frequently condemned the Israelites when their hard-heartedness And lack of concern for those in need was shown by failing to help out those like the orphans and widows in their country, in their nation. That concern, that attitude, uh, translated into what the early church did. And so from verse 1, we clearly saw that there was a daily serving of food that was being administrated to support these widows who needed help of varying degrees. Why was it important for the early church to continue this sort of ministry? Why was it important to address these issues at this specific point? And the first was to avoid threats to unity caused by apparent favoritism. We look at see this in verse one. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So, what is the what is the clear fact? The clear fact is that. A group of the widows was being neglected. And favoritism can sometimes be simple neglect, or at least the appearance of favoritism can simply be neglect. Their widows were being overlooked. Now, we know that the church in general was concerned about those who had needs, because we saw at the end of chapter 2 and also in chapter 4, that there were people who were even willing to sell their property and give the money to the early church for the support of those who had various needs. And so I don't think that the primary emphasis of this verse is to say that they had completely abandoned that sort of attitude. Rather, it seems that a group was being overlooked. I think the size and the scope of the need contributed to the problem. Think about how the early church had grown in these first few chapters. 3,000? The number of men, about 5,000, and after that point, we stopped getting counts of how many people are in the church. So if you had a group of, let's just take the 5,000 number for, for sake of ease, and you said that there were however many widows out of that group that needed to be looked after, and there are 12 apostles... Can they individually oversee that responsibility for the entirety of that group? No, it has to be delegated. Sometimes, even in uh, ministry in general, and I found this to be the case when I was uh, working for Inner City in Allen Park, there were somewhere between 30 and 35 people in any given week that were shut-ins in the hospital, those sorts of things that needed to be seen regularly, that needed encouragement of various kinds what tended to happen if i didn't come up with some sort of system to keep track of it was this i would see a certain people regularly either because humanly speaking some people are easier to visit or more pleasant to visit with than others and so we tend to gravitate toward doing that or simply because you forget you think i saw so-and-so a week ago and it had been three weeks or four weeks and so there has to be some sort of system in place to avoid neglect and that's part of the problem that we see here. Favoritism can simply be neglect. But favoritism, or at least the appearance of it, can genuinely be tied to preferring your own group over someone else's. We get a hint of this, I think, in the middle part of the verse. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Now, Let's think about what it, what was the difference, what was the tension point for these people? Well, if you remember what happened to Israel toward the end of the Old Testament, they had consistently participated in idolatry over and over and over again, failed to repent. God had said, I'm going to punish you by allowing other nations to conquer you, and a significant portion of the people were carried away into exile. Some of those people would later return at various stages under Cyrus the Persian, and even all throughout the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, people would return. Some of those people would come back with different cultures, different backgrounds, different practices. Um, Historical records indicate that the Greek-speaking Jews potentially had their own synagogues, had some of their own approaches to things that were somewhat different from the Jews who had continued following everything and, and speaking Aramaic and Hebrew and, and all of these sorts of things. And so when you have two different groups, even if it's just simple differences, what is likely to happen? These two groups sort of cluster among themselves. Now, these are all Jews. Keep in mind, these are all Jews at this point because we don't see the gospel spreading to the Samaritans until Acts 8 and to the Gentiles until Acts 10. So we're still talking about all of these are Jews, have Jewish background, and yet there are these ethnic differences that were leading these groups to sort of cluster together and not pay as much attention as they should have to the needs of everyone in the church. Uh, We see this potentially from the fact that the Apostles would have all been called from what they would call here in this passage the native Hebrews, And there were Hellenistic widows, where the people that um, the apostles had appointed likely would have been also, like them, native Hebrews. Let me give you an example of a cultural difference that would create this kind of conflict. I had a friend that I went through seminary with who was from Mexico. When he went back and he had his wedding, if I remember correctly, he said that the wedding time was something like, let's say it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. The wedding ceremony did not start until around 7 o'clock in the evening, because that's the time that everyone finally showed up. Contrast that with our culture, where if the service was at 11 and we didn't start until 2, there would be a good number of you that would be upset. These are differences, and some of you might not be, but the ones that showed up early would be. I'd say something about daylight savings time, but we'll we'll just leave that alone. Cultural differences. Is it a sin issue to show up late if that's the common cultural practice? Well, it's not really late in their context, because that's what the way that so many of these things operate. They are not clock-driven, they're more relationship-driven. That being said, could that create tension? If you had two groups of people, one of whom said, let's be there ten minutes early, kind of the business mindset of today's culture, or another group that says 10 minutes late or an hour late, that's all good. Even a simple thing like that could create conflict. Add to that language, add to that the way that you do things in your household, all these sorts of things, and you see what could have easily contributed to the problem that we see here in the early church. So first of all, it was important to deal with this issue because Ministry to widows was important, and they needed to make, be clear that favoritism was not going to create division in the early church. We know that this was also important to deal with because instead of saying, let's forget about this daily serving of food, the apostles said, let's figure out who can do it. We see this in verse 3. Therefore, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So what do we see from this? If something is important, we should figure out how to do it instead of abandoning it. Furthermore, I think that we could say, perhaps not specifically from this passage, but by way of application, that one leader's weaknesses can be supplemented by the strengths of others. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking primarily about character flaws so much as I am. Some people are really good at one thing, ...and not as good at other things. Some people are really good at organization things... ...and some people are more good at people things. Some people are really good at money things... ...and other people are not as good at money things. And so our strengths and weaknesses in the church body... ...ought to complement each other. And that, I think, is part of an application... ...of what we can take from this section as well. We need to minister the needs of those who are in the church. Because if we don't do it well... It creates disunity, because the emphasis of the, this passage was not forget about doing it, but let's figure out how we can do it. But even so, ministry to physical needs cannot lead to neglect of spiritual needs. Now, if possible, we ought to be doing both. I think 1 Timothy 4, eight sums this up well for us. Bodily exercise profits only for a little while, but godliness has value for all things because it has profit not only for this life, but for the one to come. So what would we conclude from that? Exercise is good. But exercise at the expense of godliness is not good because godliness values us now and later, and exercise only helps us out in this life. Do you see the point that I'm trying to make? The... It's not that you have to necessarily pick between the two. I think, based on what we saw from the verse 1 and 3, we should strive to do both. But certainly, we can't minister to physical needs at the expense of spiritual needs. Why does neglecting spiritual needs happen, or why could it happen? Verse 2, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Why is it that they would make a statement like that? I think that Part of it is that the amount of time that we need to do our job, well, varies. It varies based on skill and experience. It varies based on the difficulty of the task. Further, saying yes to one thing inevitably means that we're saying no to a whole lot of other things. If I say yes to watching a movie for two hours, then I may be saying no to spending that time with my wife and kids. If I say yes to sleeping in, I may be saying no to an opportunity to spend time talking to someone that I encounter later in the day, uh, witnessing or building a relationship because I'm rushing to get caught up in all the things that I didn't get done first thing in the morning. And to be clear, I'm not saying that relaxation or rest are bad. I'm just saying that every choice that we make affects other choices that we make afterward and that we have a limited amount of time, we have the same amount of time every day But however we spend that part of that day means that we have this amount of time to do all the other things that we have to do. So what's a solution then? And I think this is where uh, the apostles were getting at. We have to say, what are our primary responsibilities? Let's make sure that those get done. What does that look like for us individually? If you're a husband, spend time with your wife, even if it means you have less time for your favorite hobbies or pastimes. If you're a mom, love and teach your kids godliness, even if it means your video blog never goes viral on YouTube. If you're a child, obey your parents, even if it means your uh, friends think it's strange, something that your parents have asked you to do, or even if it means you don't get to do something that you really want to do. That's one of your primary responsibilities. Now, sometimes our roles don't conflict. Sometimes we can do our favorite hobbies and some sort of extra work and uh, do everything that the authorities over us want to do and all of these things just sort of fall into place but most of the time at least at some point in the week there's going to be a conflict between all of these different things and we have to start by prioritizing and say what does God require of me what do the people around me need and then what is it that I would like to do because it's so easy for us to get all those things out of order I say I really want to do for me it would be I really want to read this book so I could say you know what I'm gonna spend two hours every night reading this book every weeknight so that's 10 hours if I do that but that means that I'm not getting things prepared for Sunday it means that I'm not spending time with my kids It means that I'm not doing the work in the yard that I need to, so it doesn't look like a disaster. It means that, I mean, the list goes on. There are responsibilities that all of us have, and we have to prioritize getting those things done. For the apostles, they said this, those who watch for the souls of members must be committed to the word and to prayer. We see this in verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I think it's easy, because, uh, it's easy to, to minimize the importance of this because some pastors say yes to a lot of less important things. Is it wrong for a pastor to go speak at a conference? No. But if he does so at the neglect of his congregation, he's not honoring God. Sometimes pastors will say, well, I want to do the things that everybody sees. And again, that's not right. You may not immediately know if I am neglecting spending time in studying the word and in praying for each of you and in caring for you, your spiritual needs. You may not know it immediately. You probably know it sooner than some pastors like to think that, we, that you would know it. But you may not know it immediately. But God knows it. And the apostles had this sense that God is going to hold us accountable for the task that we are doing. And so the thing that we must do is word and prayer we need to minister to physical needs of those in the church. In doing so, we can't neglect spiritual needs either because we have limited time, and because especially of pastors, God requires devotion to the word and prayer. Now, to make it clear, I'm not saying I'm an apostle by making that statement. What I am saying is that the example that they set, I think, is something that I and other pastors have to live up to. How, then, can we make sure that physical needs of members are met? Because as we saw first it's important to make sure that this happens. I think the answer is this. You can help meet the physical needs of members by assisting pastors. This is true in both a specific sense of deacons and a more general sense of all church members. First of all, we see that deacons can assist pastors. We have to ask ourselves, are the men here in Acts 6 deacons? And I think the answer would be, that there are similarities and differences between what's later described in 1 Timothy 3, the uh, requirements that Paul lays out for deacons in the church. But I think in the same way that the example of the apostles sets an example for pastors today, the example of these men and the role that they played also sets an example for deacons today. So even for someone who says they're not deacons, They still set an example of the sort of ministry and service and attitude that a deacon today should have. What do we see are the requirements for these men? The first requirement is right character. First of all, a good reputation. He says, select from among you seven men of good reputation. 1 Timothy 3.10 says it this way, there should be nothing against them. And so if someone is going to serve as a deacon in the church, even if someone says... Well, he's not the pastor, and, and maybe that there should be some sort of a lesser expectation. Paul's going to say later in First Timothy, no. And even in this passage, we see that the expectation is that this person would have a good reputation. Because if he's going to serve the church well, he can't be someone that the church as a whole thinks poorly of, right? And so he needs to be someone who has a good reputation. Secondly it says the requirement was they needed to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. And the wisdom, I think, that would be described here is not just simple human wisdom, skill, um, ability to make uh, decisions in an instant, things like that, but rather godly wisdom. James 3 talks about that. The wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable and full of mercy and gentleness, whereas the, mer- the wisdom that's from below is earthly and sensual and demonic. So there's a kind of wisdom that characterizes our world, and there's a kind of wisdom that reflects godly character, and that kind of wisdom that is godly is what's being referred to here. Now it's interesting that Paul's requirements in 1 Timothy 3 don't say anything about the deacon's ability to teach, but we know at least two of the men in this list were capable of teaching, Stephen and Philip. So deacons need to have right character. Secondly, Deacons need to fit the church culture. I struggle with how to word this because, at first glance, when we look at it, 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 it sort of sounds like a concession to uh, some kind of a segregation. Let me explain that a little bit further. Their specific experiences and strengths ought to build up the assembly. If you look at their names Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenus, and Nicholas, and Stephen, They seem to have been all, or at least predominantly, from a Greek background based on their names. And so if that's the case, you have Hellenistic Jewish men serving the needs of Hellenistic Jewish widows. So this got me to thinking. So what sort of ethnic differences would that look like in our day? Is it it an affirmative action kind of Proportion, like if you have this number of people with a particular ethnic background in your church, then you have have this proportional number of deacons. I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is that you may have specific experiences that enable you to serve the congregation well. One particular application might be that not all the deacons should be exactly the same. I think it's good if one is younger, one is older, One maybe has this background, one has that background. I think the point is, here are men who were equipped to serve the specific needs of a specific group of the congregation. I think it was also uh, important that the number of them matched the needs of the congregation. Now, uh, we might say, if there's a huge group of people here, how is seven any better than 12? And I think that we would have to recognize that probably it wasn't just those seven who were doing all of the needs of the church, but rather these seven were either supervising those who were overseeing the widows, or that was the only thing that they were in charge of, was just the meeting the needs of the widows. But I think by way of application, I think that a church should have a number of deacons appropriate to the needs of the body. If you have a church of 100, you don't need 50 deacons. If you have a church of of uh, 50, you probably need at least one deacon, right? I mean, you have to think through what would fit in the particular case. And then the third thing is that the deacons need to be recognized by the congregation. We see this in verse 3. Select from among you. So they're chosen by the congregation. And then I think there needs to be a measure of acceptance. Look at verse 6. These they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. So there's a recognition by the congregation of those who have been uh, chosen from among the congregation to meet a particular task. We might stop there and we might say, that's great, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't have to meet the needs of widows, I'm not a deacon, I'm not in the early church. Why are we even talking about this? I think that we can make application from this passage To how we, as individual members of the congregation, meet the physical needs of other members. I think that there would be an expectation that you need the right kind of character as a member to assist pastors in the work of meeting the physical needs of other members. And I would encourage each one of you to work to be ready to serve God as a deacon or as our church bylaws stand now, as a deaconess, doing different aspects of ministry in the church. Can you serve without an official position? Yes. But should we all strive to meet the expectations that God has of those who are leading the church, even if we're not presently in a position of recognized leadership? Yes. Secondly, you need the right background. What I mean by this is not that we can somehow change the family that we were born into or many of the experiences of life, but rather that we should look at the experiences of our lives as training opportunities for future ministry. God may give you a particular trial so that you can comfort someone else who is going through trials. And 2 Corinthians 1, I don't think means that you have to break your leg to comfort someone who has a broken leg. You could have just gone through some specific difficulty and God comforted you. And in the same way that God comforted you, you can comfort someone else. Or maybe you are better equipped to witness to somebody because some obscure interest that you have provides a connection point to building a relationship with that person. You start talking to them about something and there's something that you spent time because you were interested in in the past or you're interested in it right now. And they say, Oh, I'm really interested in that thing. And you use that as an opportunity to witness, to build a relationship with that person. Maybe there's some particular skill that you have that you are learning now that you can use to serve the church down the road. And this is probably the most specific connection point to the service of widows. Maybe you have to fix something at your house. You say, You know what? That translates into, I could fix this at the house of a widow in the church. Or you say, You know what? I have experience doing this particular thing. I can give advice on maybe something that would help a particular widow in the church. Again, and and taking it more broadly to physical needs outside of the specific needs of widows, which is clearly the, the focus here, I think that God gives us the experiences of our lives so that we can use those experiences not just to help ourselves down the road, but minister to other people in the church body down the road. I think an important thing to recognize is that even though deacons should be recognized by the church and appointed by the church, you can serve God without an official position in the church. We need people who are recognized and we need people who just do what needs to be done. We don't need a deacon picking up paper from the pews after the service. I can do that, you can do that, the kids can do that. That's just a simple example of something where it doesn't have to be a recognized position, in order for it to get done, we all need to have an attitude of serving to meet a particular need. If someone says um, if you become aware of a need one of the widows in our church needs food a particular week, or needs help because the handle fell off her door, or something like that what's your first thought? I better, I better call the pastor and deacons and make sure that that gets done. And certainly, that's why we take up the deacons fund. That's why we'll do that at the end of the service, so that we have funds available to help with some of those sorts of needs. But at the same time, if you say, you know what? Here's a need. I can meet it. Go do it. Now, if you don't know how to put the lock back on the door, maybe find someone who does. I was thinking about this yesterday, because I had to take ours apart, and it took me three tries to get it put all back together and working again. But the point is look for ways to serve. So in, in any given week someone in our church family probably has some sort of a physical need. I may not know about it, other people in the church may not know about it, but if you know about it, ask yourself how can I meet that need? The seriousness of course varies and the amount of help each person needs varies And what's the boundary for helping people with these sorts of things? As we've talked about before, we get a a lot of requests from outside the church for helping with these sorts of things. But the priority, I think, needs to be for us meeting these needs inside our immediate assembly first before we consider those outside the assembly because of limited resources and limited time. But at the, at the very basic level, are we thinking about how we can meet needs in a way that does not create disunity? If someone in the church constantly has a need and no one ever calls, no one ever helps, that's going to be very discouraging. And I haven't observed that to be the case here. I'm just saying, keep doing a good job as you have been doing. Um, and I appreciate the way that The deacons and all of you have continued to minister in those ways so that I can focus on studying God's word and praying for you and being there in moments of crisis and some of those sorts of things. And I hope to do that well also. And sometimes that means that um, I I may need more help from some of you because of what's come up in a particular week. I mean, even a week like this last week. There was a lot of time where there was need for someone in our congregation, and I felt like it was my responsibility and privilege to be a part of that. And so then maybe something comes up, and we say, well, now here's a need from somebody else over here. And I say, I would love to go do that, but I'm over here doing this. Can one of you help me with that? These are the sorts of things that we're talking about in terms of application of this. Clearly, this was the apostles and widows and something like deacons in the early church, But I think the principles and the applications hold true. Are we concerned for ministering to physical needs without neglecting spiritual needs? And the way that that happens is that all of us together are aware of what's going on in each other's lives, looking for ways to encourage each other, and collectively serving each other in a way that allows the work to go forward, and no one feels left out, and God's name is honored. And that's the goal, I think that we see from Acts chapter 6. Let's pray. Lord, we look at these truths from your word. We look at the example of the early church. We pray that you would help us to be faithful in meeting all the needs of those who are a part of our church family. We pray that you would help us to be um making sure that we are getting done all the things that need to get done, prioritizing what's most important, but also making sure that nothing important uh, is neglected. And we know that the needs that we have when we're going through various trials are important. We thank you for the example that we see on how to minister to these things effectively. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.